Hiya. Welcome to another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability, the built environment, and zero carbon goals. This week, we're back with friend of the show, Lloyd Alter, who joined us after a, a research trip and drinking holiday to the UK. He's here to offer us a transatlantic perspective on the state of sustainable building in the UK. Now, Lloyd, former tree hogger, joined us back in February, just having finished up at that publication. He's doing a whole bunch of stuff now. Check his substack, Upfront Carbon, if you haven't already. He's in the middle of writing his next book. He's always doing interesting stuff. Anyway, Alex and I are researchers by trade, so we know that if you want to get a bit of perspective on where you're at, you'll find an awful lot of valuable insight from people who are on the outside looking in. So we thought, since he was on a tour of Ireland and the UK, it would be a magnificent opportunity to get some of that insight. You know, when you're sitting in the middle of it, you're often inclined to miss some of the good stuff that's going on. Also, I missed out on meeting up with him when he was here, so I thought it'd just be interesting to hang out for a bit and ask him to tell us what he'd learned about on his travels. Man, did he have a lot to say. Anyway, it was a lot of fun. Lloyd gave us his thoughts on wood, all the inspiring projects he visited, the people he met, cycling in Dublin and London, ventilation, air quality, humidity, all sorts. It was really good. So rather than listen to me banging on about it, I'll let you listen. Just one or two little notes. Lloyd, when he says Hereford, he means Hereford. And we cut a chunk of stuff out about food that we stuck in at the end. Okay, there you go. Enjoy. Well, before we go, it's just me and Alex this week. Jeff was on his own sightseeing so holiday trip to London. All right, cheers. Bye. So I'm sorry we didn't get to have lunch together, but I had a lovely coffee and beer with Alex. Yeah. Yeah, it was a really <laughs> nice conversation. Had a fun time. That art show at the Hayward that I went to afterwards was fabulous, by the okay. way. If it's still on, you should check it out. Okay. Yeah. What was the show? It's all about recycled materials. Um, very interesting. The world sort of building a new world out of junk, basically. Uh, it, was, it was very well done. I thought we were already doing that anyway. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we, uh, we found out Sarah... Our erstwhile host and host of the now host of the Accelerating to Zero podcast. She said that we've been put into an exhibition somewhere. Let me find the email. Oh yeah, Retrofit Twenty Three, an exhibition at the the Building Centre in London. Oh yeah, fancy. Perhaps I'll include that in the show notes. Yeah, what is it she said? Oh, she was getting a Canon heels presence designed into the exhibition. And she asked if she could include some audio clips from our various podcasts. So we now have institutional credibility. Um, nice. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah, man. So just as a, a, a preamble for the podcast, you were touring the British Isles. So you did a whistle-stop tour of Ireland and England and Scotland. Did you go up there as yes, well? Yes, mostly Scotland. Mostly Scotland. Mostly. It, it, well, one, yeah, it start, the whole thing started because... Well, we should should we be recording this? Should I let people know that the whole thing started because I'm in a Scotch club that planned a trip to Isla? <laughs> ah, uh, it is recording. I say off recording just before to make sure we didn't lose any of the 
<laughs> the gossipy nuggets. <laughs> so I said that I would go to this. You know, I hadn't been out of the house on a plane for three years because of the pandemic. And this trip sounded really interesting. And so I said, okay, I'll go. And then I started feeling really guilty about it, that I shouldn't be doing this. And I have a new book coming out next spring. And I thought that this would be a real opportunity to talk to some of the people that I talk about in the book. So I came two weeks before the uh, Scotch trip was to start and started moving around the UK to uh, talk to people, uh, many of which you will know well. And um, if I could, I've got, uh, is this just audio, this whole, um, or do you also do the video? Oh, we just use the audio. Oh, you just use the audio. Okay. So uh, then I no point in doing my slideshow, but uh, <laughs> but okay. Uh, basically, I started in Ireland because I wanted to meet Jeff in person. Um, and I had a friend who moved from the States to the West Coast of Ireland to raise horses. She met an Irish guy and moved there. So I thought, okay, I'll go to Dublin and then I'll go to the West Coast and see the whole landscape there. And when I arrived in Ireland, there was a message saying that she'd had to go to the States. Her mother is very sick. So I said, oh, got on and changed my whole schedule and just said, okay, I'm spending two days in Dublin. I'll meet Jeff. I'll do some bicycle touring and then go off to London. And so we had a wonderful time. I did two beautiful bike trips and I talked to Jeff and he organized a dinner, which eight of the people were like all the top Irish Passive House people, uh, Thomas O'Leary, who I think you know, and a pile of others. Really wonderful, wonderful time. And then moved on to England to do all of the things that I wanted to do there. The first thing I did is the last time I was in the UK, I went up to Welwyn Garden City to meet uh, Ben Adam Smith. And um, I never looked at Welwyn Garden City. I just flew in there and left. And then since then, I've been reading that this is a really interesting prototype and that Ebenezer Howard built something special here. So I went back to actually tour it and just spent uh, three or four hours walking through this community, thinking this might be a model for uh, the way we should be building now. Yeah. And it really, it really, it's so low density, it's so suburban, it really wouldn't work now. But the concept of building garden cities or new towns, as the British did so well after the Second World War, uh, should not be lost. We can't just keep doing sprawl. We have to go and say, how do we build walkable communities that people can live in and that they work and live and enjoy themselves without having to drive? Which I suppose you can do in Welland Garden City, but it was a beautiful, beautiful place. And the thing about my new book, my new book is called uh, The Story of Upfront Carbon. And upfront carbon is normally known as embodied carbon, the carbon that is emitted when you make things. And there, it raises, you have to look at everything in terms of the embodied, or as I prefer to call it, upfront carbon, because it's not embodied. Embodied implies that it's in the thing when it's out in the atmosphere. So yeah. I call it upfront. And 
there were people who inspired me all through this. There were uh, people like um, Nick Grant, the engineer who works with Alan Clark, who is, and uh, they are two wonderful people. And Nick has been writing for years about the concept of simplicity, about using as little material as possible, about simplifying your building forms so you don't have complications in that. And Alan Clark came, I went out to Hereford to meet Nick and Alan Clark knew I was there and he drew, drove up and it turned out we were there for the day of a soapbox derby that a bunch of these passive house people had got together and used the pandemic to build a soapbox that George, uh, George McKerchick would drive and they would race this soapbox. And I arrived on the day of a soapbox derby run in uh, Nick's town. So it was a lot of fun, but got to talk to both Nick and Alan about these concepts of simplicity. For instance, I was completely blown away by their discussion of the archives that they had both become specialists in, that they built in 2015, this first archive in Hereford, where normally our archives are complicated buildings with complicated ventilation systems that heat and cool and humidify and dehumidify to keep everything the same temperature and humidity. They looked at all of this and they had an insight that there's a huge amount of mass in all the paper that's in these. And this mass of paper holds moisture and it holds temperature because it's just vast. <laughs> and they started thinking, why are we working so hard to adjust that little bit of air that's surrounding all the stuff when the paper could basically do it for us? That all the experts say the problem isn't that the temperature goes up or down. The problem is things happen quickly, that if it's stable, it's fine. And so they said to the Hereford people, we're going to just not do the air conditioning and ventilation and dehumidification and humidification system. We're just going to build a really tight passive house box that doesn't leak, that doesn't absorb a lot of heat, that doesn't give it up, and let the paper do the work. And nobody believed, evidently, that this would work. And they built it, and it did. It worked really? perfectly. Uh, this massive building holding tons and tons of paper basically became self-regulating because it was in this passive house box, wasn't absorbing a lot of heat or giving it off. And so it could just, because of the mass of it all, be totally stable. And now the two of them are consulting to archives all over the world. And it's a revolution when you think about it. What happens when you just stop thinking about you have to throw energy at things, you have to adjust, 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 and you just let them be? How did they get someone to allow them to do that? Well, that I've got to go. Uh, that's a good question. They didn't. Hereford didn't have the budget to do that, the whole thing. So I think and I think there were some other experts in the archiving business who were saying, you know, we should think about doing this. Uh, and so, so is this Jeff's? Uh, so one of the things Jeff says about the benefit, the cost benefit of Passive House, where hypothetically everyone perceives it as costing more. But once you take out your heating and a big chunk of the plumbing, you've just reduced a whole bunch of costs straight off the bat. Well, here was hundreds of thousands of dollars of saving in equipment, but also 80,000 pounds a year in savings on energy that it took to run it because the thing just 
runs itself. It's just basically vast amounts of paper holding vast amounts of moisture that just wants to be left alone. So that was incredibly impressive that these uh, brilliant insight, and they're going to be doing archives for the rest of their lives because it was just such a wonderful thing that they did here. And so I spent a wonderful dinner. I didn't get to talk much. I'm going to you're going to have to provide links in this to Nick Grant's article in Building Design from 2014 about the concept of simplicity. Yeah. And he has another concept that I loved that I actually developed, I think, independently, uh, that there are two kinds of people in the world, the sort of supply side people who just think you just throw stuff at it, throw stuff at uh, technology, at buildings and everything, and the demand side where you just do less. You just provide, you just get by with less. And so I always talk about how Elon Musk is a supply side of guy. We'll throw electric cars, we'll throw solar roofs, we'll throw all of this technology at everything. And that when I write my books, I'm sort of talking about I'm a demand side of guy. Let's just reduce the demand. Give me my bicycle, give me my little <laughs> apartment and my little passive house and just reduce demand, reduce, reduce, reduce. And, um, Nick Grant wrote about this and wrote about simplicity in 2014, and I thought were great articles. Then Nick took me, I don't know if you know this builder, Mike Whitfield, who does a lot of passive houses. They took me to a building um, that Mike was building, a house. And one of my big fundamental problems that I wanted to talk to people about and resolve when I was here was this question of how good is wood construction? Is mass timber as good as they say it is? Uh, Is there not an issue of how much fiber it makes when you do all this mass timber? And I go to this house that Mike Whitfield is doing, and the entire house is built out of these standard eye joists. And what eye joists are, if you don't know, is like two little pieces of wood held together by a piece of masonite in between. So it looks like an eye beam made out of wood and there's nothing to them. And he built this whole house out of them, the floors, the walls, the ceilings, everything everything out of them, the rafters. He honestly felt that this house, you know, had to be nailed down to the ground or it would just blow away. There's so little (laughs) fiber in it. And it was shocking because I went directly from there to a mass timber building in Hereford. Well, no, I had to stop in between at uh, one of my favorite passive houses anywhere, which is uh, uh, George McKerchick's house that he built out of straw bale. This beautiful covered in shishuki ban wood, solar panels on the roof, and just marvelous, marvelous house, which I've written about many times. There's this wonderful picture that I use to always talk about passive house comfort with his dog sitting in the chair in the sunbeam coming through the window. <laughs> Such an evocative photo and visited the house. And the house was as lovely as it was in the photos. And then it was off to this center of wood technology in Hereford, which was a building uh, that was originally a competition and the competition winner was too expensive to build so they did a sort of design build thing and did a cheaper building uh, with half steel half wood and the steel made perfect sense because it was an industrial building with huge spans and the wood was dare i say impolitely clunky i looked into it and thought 
wow, there's a lot of wood in here not doing very much at all, especially after coming from a straw building and from Mike Whitfield's build, building that was like more air than wood. And I looked at this thing and it troubled me that there was so much, so much wood in it. You know, a roof made of four inches, six inches thick of cross laminated timber. There's a lot of trees in there. Yeah. And I met Andy Simmons there. You know, I'm seeing everyone there. So Andy Simmons <laughs> of the ACB, who wrote, I thought, the most brilliant article I read in Passive House Plus last year, all about how much wood are we using? Look, let's not lose the forest for the trees, et cetera. Brilliant article. Yeah. So I spent the afternoon talking to him about that. Um, but, just uh, before we move on, uh, props to Lenny Antonelli, the co-author. Yes, I'm sorry. The two of them wrote Lenny yeah. and Yes, that's absolutely correct. So I then had to go back to London to fight this out with Andrew Waugh of Waugh Thistleton. And they were the pioneers of mass timber construction with the famous building in Hackney in 2009, the first tall mass timber building in the UK. And he's become an absolute specialist in it. And he and I were going to work on a project to develop a new website uh, promoting wood construction before the pandemic hit and the whole thing fell apart. But uh, I'd basically known him and spoken to him before. So I wanted to go hash it out, you know, is wood good? Should we be using it this way? And he took me to his new building, which is the black and white building, which is in Hackney, a short walk away from his office. And I fell in love with mass timber all over again, because what he's done is he recognizes the problem that we have to use less of the stuff. And he um, is using a fancy one called LVL, laminated veneer lumber, that Basically, it's not big two-by-fours glued together, but it's thin veneer glued together, and it's much, much stronger, so they can use much smaller pieces. And when you look at this building, it's light, and it's airy, and it's not clunky at all, and the wood is used really carefully, and he tells me that they're using 40% less wood per square meter than they did when they started and that they're constantly refining it and they're constantly making the engineering better. And so they're being able to reduce the amount of wood. Now, this is the issue of wood and how good it is, is always something that I've been arguing about. Like, we, should we be using wood this way? And the consensus is absolutely yes. Every time you don't, if you're, if you're not using trees, then you're mining. You're mining for concrete. You're, you're making yeah. concrete or you're mining for steel. So that substituting for it, substituting wood for steel is always going to be an environmental win. I, I had trouble when you could also use lightweight framing. Like when I look at what Mike Whitfield's doing in that house, you look at it and you know it makes no sense to use uh, mass timber in a house. But in a building, in a six-story building like the uh, black and white building, it makes total sense. And, you know, they will calculate, look at all the carbon savings by measuring all the carbon they saved by not building out of, out of steel. And I always thought this was a ridiculous way to look at it. It's like saying, oh, on my diet to lose weight, I can... I can count the chocolate cake I didn't eat. You know, you just should, you, no, you don't do that. You just count <laughs> what you eat, not the chocolate cake you didn't. So, well, there's something in uh, thinking about it in operational terms. 
like with the black and white building, the design in terms of reducing the need for air conditioning. Yes. And they were very good on limiting the amount of glass. And the most important thing they did was shading. This is the thing that everybody has forgotten about, is that you want to keep the heat out before it gets in there in the first place. In much of Europe, everybody, every house has rolled down shadings in their windows on the outside or shutters on the outside. You go to, when I was in Milan, I saw every house, they would be open all night to get the fresh air, and then they close the shutters in the daytime. I've seen rolling shutters in English houses and Scottish houses, but not many. No. Well, I think, see, this is why I wanted to get you on for this episode, to get the outsider's perspective. Because it's not like we've got candida, the fish out of water. Right. You know, you're just in a, a a different set of water and you're coming with a very particular, uh, <laughs> I was going to say per set of skills, but I'm making you sound like Liam Neeson. Uh, no, that you've got a lot of experience in the sector. Um I think uh, what you've highlighted there is something very true that we just don't we don't think about heat in those terms because right. you have we, we are so unused to it. Yeah. Yes. And so our biggest problems are going to be keeping the heat out. Not and uh, this is something that I don't think they uh, they faced in the British Isles very much. No. Yeah, you know, you're right about coming with a different perspective. I mean, this is not a discussion about bicycles, but I'm very much uh, involved in sort of promoting bicycles and urban design around bicycles and making places safe for bicycles. And I never ride a bike when I'm in the UK because I'm scared to death. I'm going to look the wrong way and get squished because I've spent my life on the other side of the road. But in... Ireland, I went, I signed up for two bike tours, knowing I'd be behind a guide so I could just follow the guide and I'm not going to look the wrong way and get killed. And I was appalled at how bad the bike infrastructure was in Dublin. I felt like I was taking my life in my hands going on a bike lane that should have been right by the river, but was on the wrong side of the road, which put in the death stroke with buses and everything else. And then another one that was separated with Lexi posts, which are not safe at all. You know, not going to take a four-year-old in a bike when I'm separated by the road by a stupid Flexi post. And everybody I talked to in Dublin said, Oh, but our bike infrastructure is so much better than it used to be. We've made such tremendous progress. I'm thinking, <laughs> really? You call this progress? So you're right. Sometimes it takes an outsider to look at it. But they were shocked that I was so terrified of their bike infrastructure that they thought was so good. I'm, I'm the same. I've never dared to cycle in London at all. Alex, he's very <clears> proficient. <throat> but I think it's quite telling, Alex, that when you say, oh, no, it's fine. You just have to learn the routes you need to take. Yes. Well, yes. that's true. That's absolutely true everywhere. And that's true in Toronto where I cycle. So I have long discussions about wood with uh, Andrew Waugh and how they're perfectly aware of the need to use less and the need to stop using concrete. He had a, a parking garage for bikes in this building, but in the lower level. And he said the amount of concrete that went into building this bike parking garage meant that every bike had to be ridden for 110 years for it to justify the amount of concrete. <laughs> and he said, we just have to stop building underground, stop building with concrete because of the immense carbon footprint of concrete, which is interesting because I've never heard anybody trash a bike garage before. This is something that I usually love. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
And the final two people I met in London, which are not probably well known in the passive house world, were an engineer named Will Arnold, who writes for the Institution for Structural Engineers. And he's just done a hierarchy of design, which basically comes down to use less stuff. Those three words. It starts with build nothing, build less, build clever, build efficiently, but ultimately that everything that we design has to be done with using less stuff. And so I wanted to meet him. Alex, you know him? Uh, we interviewed uh, Charlie Luxon uh, a few episodes back, and he his main point, which was the the name of the uh, the episode, is uh, architects need to learn how to build less buildings. They don't need to solve every problem with a building. And so I think you're absolutely right. It's that approach of thinking how to do less rather than trying to always say, "Well, the easy solution is just build a thing and and make it happen." But it's such a challenging thing. You have to think differently. I think that's a big problem, isn't it? Oh, you do have to think differently. Also around this breakfast table with Will Arnold was another architect in London, um, Kelly Alvarez-Doran, who recently did a slideshow. And I'll just read off one of his final slides that with all of our buildings, we have to have less parking, less glass, less petrochemicals, less demolition, less metal, less floor area <laughs> per person, less extractive, less emissive, less weight. So this is becoming now... Uh, consideration that we all have. And Kelly Alvarez-Duran is co controversial in passive house circles because he did a study, for instance, where he said, okay, a triple glazed window has an has 50% more glass. It has probably 30% more frame. It has 100% more spacing. And he started looking, how long does it take for that extra embodied carbon, upfront carbon for making that triple glazed window take to pay off. And he found that in a lot of places, it takes a very long time. And this does not go down well in the passive house world, where someone is saying, let's trade off the extra material going into the triple glazed window uh, versus just doing a double glazed windows, to which I answer, well, just put in less window and balance it out, make it triple glazed, but they don't need to be so big. So this was a very interesting breakfast with him and Will Arnold. And then I moved north. I got in the train on my way to Scotland and stopped in Durham to meet uh, Mark Siddall, who's been in the magazine and is a prize award-winning passive house architect who knew that I was doing this whole trip eventually to drink scotch in Isla and turns out to be a passionate single malt whiskey drinker with a vast collection. So I stopped in Durham to see not only his wonderful stone clad, he designed this passive house that won a lot of awards. It was built inside a stone barn, beautiful, beautiful design. But before I got to see that, I got to see a single malt collection and sample a pile of those, which was wonderful. Then looked at this passive house which was glorious, this lovely couple who have this big farm. They gave part of it away for a community garden and built this whole passive house inside the two-foot-thick walls of the stone barn. I believe it's been covered in Passive House Plus a number of times. I think so, yeah. And then I got back on the train, kept going to Glasgow, got in the cars and drove out to Isla. And I don't remember anything after that. <laughs> uh, no, I had a lovely time. The roads, I don't know, the roads in Scotland. I mean, when you come from Canada where roads have shoulders, 
and lanes are wide. And you come up here where there are no shoulders and where the roads don't, the lanes don't seem, if there are lanes, to be any wider than the car itself. And everybody's just bombing along. It's amazing. I was scared to death in cars. <laughs> I can believe. Well, I mean, this is the difference. It's like cycling. You have to get used to these things. I say as someone who doesn't drive. Yeah. I, had a, I had a wonderful trip. I came away with no, you know, one of the main things I wanted to know is like, how good is wood? How much carbon is really stored in it? Is it the best way to build? I think I came home more confused about wood than I was when I left. Um, I'm really um, sorry to have to interrupt you here. Like, the more you talk about wood, like, I'm just, we are definitely missing Jeff, given my juvenile response to Lloyd endlessly referring to wood and good wood and Jeff would be having a field day with the innuendo you're offering us here. Uh, just needed to get that out of my system and off the table. So, yeah, pouring one out to Jeff. Right. So, anyhow, I didn't come away with a true answer about wood. Um, I am very enthusiastic, having seen what Andrew Waugh is doing, and he's the master of wood in terms of that they're, they understand how important it is to reduce the amount of fibre. I was really excited by seeing Mike Whitfield's work in building passive houses, that basically getting as fiber down as low as possible, seeing how comfortable uh, George Bakurchik's house was that's all built out of straw. That passive house, it's very clear that we can do passive. You know, everybody says, oh, people like Kelly Alvarez Duran who say there's too much stuff in a passive house. And other people who have said, you know, oh, there's too much plastic in a passive house. And it's patently not true. You can see everything out there. They're building them out of straw. They're building them out of engineered wood. They're building them with this, with really working on dialing back the, uh, the amount of upfront carbon in the materials. And uh, so I, I came back really optimistic about that. From your perspective, then, how do we fix the the UK? Then, what's your what's your advice to us? Well, one of the worst things that happened in the UK is that there was this huge reaction to Grenfell to the fire, that basically they banned wood in the exterior walls of buildings, and they made the insurance companies are uh, really giving everybody who tries to do anything in mass timber a lot of trouble doing it when. It wasn't the wood. The building was not made of wood. It was made of plastic. And the problem was not anything to do with wood. But they And the person who overviewed everything said, oh, the, the one thing you don't have to do is change the building code. The problem here was ignoring regulations, putting the wrong kind of cladding out. If the building had been built according to code, then it wouldn't have had the combustible cladding. But everybody just turned their head. So they're just blaming all the wrong people. Uh, wood is the using wood and natural materials, wood and straw and product products like that is the single best way to reduce the upfront carbon that goes into buildings. And to ban it because a plastic building had a problem is 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 nuts. So uh, this is one thing. The other, but the, the really encouraging lesson to see was that there is an understanding 
including in the passive house community of the importance of reducing the upfront carbon of using uh, as, and reducing for the people in wood like uh, like Antonelli and and uh, oh god uh, Andy. Was, uh, Andy Andy Simmons were, yeah. Andy Simmons were writing in their article you know they were stressing we've got to use our forests properly we have to use as little fiber as possible and i think everything's coming together nicely we've got the concept of simplicity that um, that Nick Grant was talking about. I have a, I don't know if you know Bronwyn Berry, the American passive house. Um, she was head of North American passive house for a while. You know, she has a thing that she uses, a uh, boxy but beautiful, as her hashtag. That everything passive houses should be simple. Architects love to do pushes and pulls and jogs and that. And you're getting a new aesthetic, I think, now that's coming out of the passive house community of simpler buildings that are done with nice proportions and nicely proportioned windows to get away from this jog here and push here and bump there that so much of architecture was. Yeah. So I think well, it's transforming. Like architecture, certainly in this country has often been driven by consumption in terms of money. Yes. Like, how much can we spend? How do we spend it? Or how little do we have? How do we get away with not spending it? Well, they, well, they want to spend it in stuff you can see. This is the problem with with passive houses, that it's you've heard of conspicuous consumption. People spend money on the granite counters and in the fancy car park. The problem with passive houses, it's, it's inconspicuous consumption that you don't see it. There was there's was a study done a few years ago that and it was you know conspicuous. They they were doing conspicuous conservation. This one group of people, one family wanted to put the solar panels on the street side of their house, even though it was the raw the sun didn't hit them because they wanted people to know that they had solar panels. And if they put them on the south facing side of the house in the back, nobody could see them. And so really? So that was conspicuous conservation. And or that silly building in London with the fake propellers up at the top, the strata tower, oh. the filler shaped building. And yeah. then, you know, this is conspicuous conservation. Whereas passive house is inconspicuous. Nobody sees it. Nobody knows about it. And that's what I like about the fact that there is a new aesthetic of simplicity that is developing among passive house architects that um, you now can tell, hey, that's a passive house. It's a simple, elegant, nicely proportioned form without bumps, without... Do you know why those turbines are not working on that, on the Strata building? They don't work. No, they don't run. Do you know why? Uh, Because... Uh, turbines on buildings rarely work. They almost never work. In that building, they actually asked the architect to put motors on it so it would look like they were spinning. And the architect said, no, I'm not putting motors on the thing. <laughs> but they were never going to work, and they knew it right from the beginning. What is your reason why they don't work? Well, Did you hear another story? Well, I heard another story. So it's really interesting you're saying that because I heard that apparently the people living in the the I suppose the the big the nice luxury flats just below complained of the uh, the, the noise the humming noise so they had them stopped because the owners didn't want that noise to bother them. That wouldn't surprise me, but I don't think they ever turned anyway, just because of the problems with uh, building integrated wind turbines have been proven to be a flop just because. They may not be pointing the right way, and there's so much uh, other wind running around them. But those those that was known right from the beginning would never work. Yeah, that's interesting. I think what's interesting in what you're talking about here with passive house is something that 
and I don't want this just to become the Passive House podcast, is that like Jeff promoted Passive House way back when, and one of the positive aspects of it is that it's material agnostic. Like it, it just wanted to get the job done to make it Passive House. And it takes time for things to evolve, like for strategies to be developed, for alternative methods to be tried, tested, to get you to a point where you can build a passive house out of straw bale comfortably. What I find really interesting, and this is where I see, where I'm beginning to see some future for passive house, because, you know, it has been a very much a sidetrack for zealots, as I like to mockingly refer to Jeff. Is we're seeing people investigating it properly in social housing, in terms of uh, like the uh, local governments and housing associations, and with what you're describing there, like the multiple methods, the tried and tested, what are now tried and tested solutions, and with this, we've just come off a a, a call immediately before this with a, a local authority, um, and like. We're seeing, we're talking to people within the industry who are actually trying to find ways to incorporate these, I mean, what are now old ideas into what is standard working practice. Like, yeah, they're mature technologies. And there's a, a plurality in how this, how something like Passive House can be achieved that means that once people stop being scared of having to spend so much more money, they're going to be able to get in on it. I have to interrupt. You're going to have to edit this out, but I have dog problems. A dog is turning over my wastebasket and trying to eat all my garbage. <laughs> One second. <laughs> Just while Lloyd attends to the dog in his bin, when I talk about the fear about how much more Passive House costs, as we've discussed before, when we spoke with Dr. Shane Coakley, it don't cost more. The methods and strategies of Passive House, they can be produced at the same cost as traditional building. It just needs the expertise to be deployed. It just needs folk to learn how to do it. Anyway, I think he's got the dog out now. There we go. <laughs> we have this yeah. King, King, Cavalier King Charles Spaniels are not normally very smart dogs. And we have one that's not very smart. My daughter who lives upstairs has one that is like a genius, can get into everything, get into so much trouble, can push chairs around to climb on tables. Unbelievable. Anyhow. That's who that was. Anyhow, to get back to the subject, you raised a very interesting point about it being material agnostic passive house. I always disagreed with this and got into fights. I actually once was on a big Twitter discussion with L. Ron Burrell, the passive house architect now in New Zealand, and developed what at the time I called, instead of the passive house standard, the L. Ron standard, which I called it, which was you started with passive house and then you added on embodied carbon, the upfront carbon of making things, and you added on transportation efficiency, location efficiencies, because what's been found so much often is you could have a passive house in the country, and if someone's driving their gasoline-powered BMW, do it, because it's in the country, you know, they're blowing all the benefits of carbon. So you had to include upfront carbon and transportation carbon in your equation. And that was going to be the Elron standard. And Dr. Feist, the co-founder of Passive House, said, no, 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 we should just care about energy, energy, energy. This was five years ago. You look now, and they're talking very clearly about 
embodied carp and upfront carp. And then a lot of passive house architects have caught on to this. And the old story of them having to sit on two feet of styrofoam, it's gone. It was never absolutely true, but they're not doing it anymore. I mean, you know, sitting on two feet of styrofoam isn't necessarily a bad thing either. It's a long lasting, you know, material, like there are positives involved in that. But what it was in the early versions of the PHP software, as I understand it, if they were deficient somewhere out here, then they would just dial up the foam under the floor to make it all work. And so that you were sometimes getting ridiculous amounts of insulation. And that evidently doesn't happen anymore. But at the time, you would see rafts of it. Well, this is it. I mean, how old is Passive House as a standard now? 25 years. Yeah. That's still very young, isn't it? Yes. I thought it was older than that. I, I always assumed I it was from the so. 70s. I, well, maybe a little older. Dr. Feist's house uh, did a 25-year review. That, yeah, you're right. It's probably 28, 29 now. Mm. But even so, yeah. you know, we were we were talking... So the other week we were talking with uh, the guys from Be First London about modern methods of construction and how they're not that modern... <laughs> like it's a, it's a centuries old technology as opposed to a millennia old technology. Well, and the problem is we see so often in so many buildings built just after post-war and that when everybody said, oh, we can do it this way, we can do this way, can do this. So many of them are falling apart, you know. When they first said in the oil crisis, 1973 crisis, oh, we have to tighten up buildings, we have to reduce ventilation levels, and we have to reduce heat loss, but they didn't understand humidity. I worked, uh, the first building I worked on for the first office I worked at after graduating in architecture school in the early 70s, they were doing a big courthouse north of Toronto. And the energy rules came out and said, you've got to tighten this up. You've got to put solar panels on the roofs. And everybody said, okay, we'll do all this. And what happened, a courthouse gets thousands of people in it, and people put out a lot of humidity, and they didn't calculate it right. And this whole courthouse became so moldy so quickly that they had to move out into portables. They had to like set up portables around it because the judges wouldn't go in. And five years ago, they demolished the whole thing because it couldn't be saved. We didn't understand a lot of the technologies and Passive House understands moisture. That's why there's the HRVs and the ERVs and they're such a critical part of it. Oh, right. That's a, a magnificent segue. Sorry, I'll let you finish. So this is the thing it's taken 50 years since the oil crisis, when people started worrying about insulation and vapor sealing and all of that, and people are still screwing it up, which is why we still have buildings, new buildings with mold in them. So this is, so that's a magnificent segue. Thank you, Lloyd. Uh, But one of the things I wanted to ask you about was, uh, all right, so one of the things we've spoken about, it was one one of your newsletter articles. Oh, it was the Windows article. That was it, uh, where you were bemoaning the fact that with every retrofit, folk, you've recounted this personally, everyone reaches for windows first without thinking about air tightness. Right. However, in the UK, our buildings are so poorly built so frequently that if you were to impose a, a regime of air tightness, oh, Jesus, uh, 
all of a sudden, because there's no ventilation, because the lack of air tightness is the ventilation system of the building right. stock. Yes. Like, you, that is just not a viable strategy. Like, I was chatting about this with Andy from Green Building Store. You know, he was, <laughs> like, mockingly, but affectionately, referring to the ventilation properties of ill-fitted skirting boards. <laughs> Never mind the loose windows and door frames. Like, yes, and it's a huge problem. You can't tighten up the building, especially the relatively small buildings, houses that they are in the UK. Um, you can't tighten them up without having a proper ventilation strategy. And it seems that nobody thinks of that. Yeah, well, and, it's too complicated. I think that's the problem. Is it complicated now? Is it? I mean, it isn't complicated. They just, you know, you seal it up and you put in an HRV and you connect the HRV to a humidistat and you're there. Yeah. All right. So part of the complication is folk in this country don't understand ventilation or humidity. Right. It's something don't. we've never had to think about because we have poorly ventilated, uh, sorry, poorly fitted buildings which lack air tightness and cheap fuel to mitigate the concerns. You actually, just... you actually sell windows with trickle vents. You just sell windows that are designed to leak I with was... uncontrolled ventilation. I think, how crazy is this? Yeah, and I was still there. Yeah. Oh, man, and it's got worse as well. Like, the vents got bigger. The trickle vents got bigger, according to government regs recently. So this is why I was talking to Andy. Like, we're looking at, uh, looking at windows. Triple glaze. Top drawer, passive house, standard windows. I mean, passive house is irrelevant. Triple glazed windows, beautiful quality work. But by regulation, if you don't have a ventilation system put in, according to the the building standards, they have to be fitted with trickle vents, which that creates a break in the bloody system. Well, you might as well just have a plastic sheet. Forget the triple glazed windows. I mean, you're just throwing everything away that you just paid for by putting in the trickle vent. Oh, man, Jesus. It is It is an absolutely crackers approach. A building, a house is a system. This is the thing. The thing that got me so upset with energy conservation in Canada was the government say, we'll give you money, and the window salesman would just come around like, like flies, they just descend on you and say, we'll sell you new windows. And people would say, great, that'll solve my problems. Of course it didn't. You have to look at the whole house as a system. And what the Canadian government did this time around, when they said, okay, we're going to give every house up to $10,000 to improve your energy efficiency, is they didn't leave it to the people. They said, First, we'll give you $2,000 to have an assessment done. The assessment will include a blower door. The guy will give you a list. This is the stuff you will pay for in this order. So yeah. if you couldn't come in, if you wanted the government money, you couldn't come in and say, oh, I just want new windows, or I just want this. You had to say, first, you're going to do air sealing. Then you're going to replace this leaky door here. Then you're going to put insulation in your attic. And the people are saying, what about windows? And they got, the assessors are saying, there's not a problem with your windows. They can just be sealed. Yeah. The the problem we've got in this country is an unwillingness to impose those sorts of conditions, to tell people what to do. 
in their own home. The Brancaphorism that an Englishman's home and is is his castle, which is applied throughout the British Isles to all sorts of detriment. So you will let them the take paper. government money to put in a new gas boiler. I mean, it's like stupid. Yeah, <laughs> it is properly stupid. But yeah, there's no strategic thinking about how to mitigate the obvious problems. I mean, I'm still struggling with trying to work out how to ventilate a building properly. Open the windows. Well, which is fine in the summer. No, no, just, just all and the time. And it depends where you live. In much of London, the outdoor air quality is so awful, opening the windows is toxic. I mean, yeah. if you're sitting on some high street with all the cars and, and and trucks going by, you go up and look at the level of... Par- we never used to care about particulates. Nobody talked about particulates because we were burning coal and everybody smoked. And so we just were living in a <laughs> miasma and a fog of particulates. And now that we understand how bad PM 2.5 particulates are, you don't want to open a window. Yeah. You want to have a filter system. Yeah, I would love to have that now. Now that I know about it and realize that all the problems I had when I was younger with uh, asthma could have been completely removed if I'd had sort of, well, if the house had had a nicely ventilated, uh, filtered uh, air, air supply, it would have been fantastic. Yeah. And these are the particulate issue that the fact that this was so ignored, it's still ignored. There is no legal regulation for indoor particulates. Uh, everybody's still buying gas stoves. Um, the the it it's my I find it mind-boggling that this issue is a top of mind, but it isn't. I think for the moment, if people are still going to say, ah, but cooking with my gas stove is so much better, the quality of the food is better, we're gonna have a problem. It comes back to what you said about people investing in in their marble countertops rather than not on the fabric of the building. There's with we're competing against perceived comfort or or convenience that people want. And we haven't taught people to understand that actually. The real comfort and the and the quality of life will come from well uh, designed and insulated buildings that actually create that level of comfort that we we should be having. Yeah, but you are considering a very narrow segment in that. No, everyone aspires like, to have them. You may not be able to afford it. That's true, but everyone aspires to it, and you will still go end up having your faux marble worktop if you want to. I mean, I'm, I'm making a massive overstatement here, but everyone aspires to nice stuff. But like to be able to consider an investment in uh, changing changing fundamental infrastructure in your house, like not- shifting to an induction hob to give you something approximating the the quality of cooking that you get with gas as opposed to the the god awful electric stoves that we we use. Speak to my wife. Speak to my wife, who I took years trying to convince to go induction, and now wouldn't go back to gas if you paid her. She just loves it so much more. Yeah, but like to be able to think about that as an investment in your yeah. home, you got to have the money to be able to do it. And there are scant few people. Like I'm in, I'm in a good position. Me and my missus, and like we ain't going to be buying, changing our cooker anytime soon. Beg of the particulars. I'll die sooner because like that. The difference in quality of life that that will grant me is invisible to me. I'll die sooner, right and off. No, okay, but I think you're, you're right. I mean, there's so much, so much you can argue, especially in the sort of the retrofit space, if you like. But when we're building new buildings, oh, right, yeah. why isn't everything 
not already being built to, let's say, close to passive house standard, like what the Scottish are trying to do. And, and I, I know there's there's a, there's a few answers to that, but it's still a valid question. We should be asking ourselves, why is this not happening already? We know the solutions. We know it needs to be done. We know it's better. But actually, if you can talk to the majority of the public, they'd be looking at you as if you were mad talking about this because they wouldn't, they've never even heard about it. And if you look at the governments, what are they doing? They're promoting hydrogen because all of the gas companies and the energy companies see hydrogen as a way of saving their butts and continuing their business because they'll have something to pipe. And it's a total fantasy. It's a mirage. And yet people are, they're now selling hydrogen-ready gas boilers and people are buying this stuff and the government's promoting it. And it's it's just just ridiculous yeah it's absolutely absurd and it is also uh being like this absurdity is being fueled by the grant system as well oh in fact i'll I'll not carry on getting down that track i'd have to reveal something and can't and blah 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 uh man it's all bonkers (laughs) so we don't have an answer for air tightness then we just need to try and do better somehow. I think that's... Controlled ventilation is not just a matter of passive house uh, saving energy and preventing mold. It's a serious issue of our personal health. It's uh, because it's not just the dealing with the humidity. Again, it's dealing with the other pollutants that are in the air, in particular the particulates. And we have to start forgetting this idea that a house has to breathe and that we bring in all this outside air uncontrolled through open windows or trickle vents. We have to have controlled air. We have to treat our houses as an isolated separate thing because the air outside, especially in wildfire season, the amount of particulates that people who, you know, smoke. When you're smelling smoke, you're smelling pure particulates. That's what it is. And people are living and the levels are way higher than should be safely allowed in a house. And there have been studies in California that show that in wildfire country, you want to be in a passive house, that that filtration system dramatically reduces the amount of smoke that gets into the house. And these are things that we have to start thinking about. Uh, we have these still have diesels and everything, and people, where do they build all the apartments on the high streets? What are people living in? They're living in this pall of smoke from cars and trucks. We moved to a busy road, uh, quite a busy road last year, and uh, I consoled myself with the knowledge that, all right, well, with the shift to EVs, we'll lose a lot of the pollution and the noise. Yeah. Or we will lose the pollution and the noise, and immediately... Jeff started shaking his head, like, oh, no, no, no. And you've got to be mindful of the the the, the tire debris that's left and all, all everything that is kicked up into the air yes, through the yes. process of driving. And they're putting noisemakers on them so that pedestrians will know they're coming. So they're not even going to be quieter. <laughs> this is why I always say electric cars won't save us and why we have to sort of get to a culture of recognizing that bicycles will, by spikes and e-bikes will, because we just changing every car to an EV doesn't stop the, them killing people. It doesn't stop the parking problems. It doesn't stop them blocking the bike lanes and the sidewalks so people can get by. Uh, 
There's a whole thing now about charger clutter. You can't walk down, push a wheelchair down the street because they're putting they're putting chargers in the sidewalks. So God forbid they should put them where the cars go in the parking lane. You've got to put them in the sidewalks. Electric cars will save the automobile industry. Well, that's what they're, the that's, yes. It's not about saving the climate. It's about saving the automobile industry. Exactly. But, you know, what are you going to do? The issues are so great in those terms, like, you know, like beyond comprehension. It's far greater than me being minded about particulates and gas in my kitchen. Right. Yeah. Well, next week I'm being forced to do a little experiment. I had no trouble at all, even though everybody was complaining about the British train system. The train system worked very well for me when I went. I had one delay where there was a flood in this train uh, in a tunnel, and it had to take a longer route. So I was a little bit late getting into London from Hereford. But next week, we'd long planned this trip to Niagara Falls with my daughter and her family. And it's an hour and a half drive. And I double booked to do a lecture in the other direction. So I'm taking the subway to the train terminal. I'm taking the train to this town where I'm doing my talk. I'm taking the train back to Toronto and then getting on a bus to go to Niagara Falls. I'm doing like a multiple stop thing all on transit in Ontario, where we're not known for good transit and reliable trains. It will be a very interesting experiment, which people in the UK do all the time, I understand. You know, people, you rely on your trains to get around. Yes and no. I mean, uh, less so because of this this parlous state that they're in at the moment. Uh, but that's down to economic issues and the government. When, like, I got a, I got a train up. Oh man! In fact, I'll call this bit it's garbage. It's just me complaining about an awful journey I had. Well, no, but the problem is these are fundamental issues because this is what I always say, that you can't look, for instance, at a passive house alone. You have to look at it in its context. Is it in a community that you can survive in without driving a car? And is that community in a country where you can survive without driving a car? And from the sounds of it, like it's getting so hard to rely on the car to go across the country. Um there are all kinds of problems in the cities uh, with too many cars. And I, the, I I keep watching all these fights and the, I read about in the low traffic neighborhoods in London and everybody going to war over these things and think, people, don't you understand why we need these things? And there's a fundamental cu- cultural division between the people who want to drive everywhere and the people who realize that we've got to stop driving we've got to deal with this and reduce the amount of driving that we do drastically yeah i think this is a generational thing there's a cohort that's absolutely unwilling to contemplate doing things any differently yeah uh, i mean if you look at london there was a, a protest about the ULES, so the the emissions charge on cars yes, a big protest and there have been perpetual protests about from Just Stop Oil, about uh, investment in fossil fuels and the fossil fuel industry at large. Oh, and you brought in these draconian laws that you can arrest anyone for, like, slowing traffic, for even walking, looking like you're going to go stop traffic. They can arrest you before you even do it now. Well, you've got protesters being assaulted in the street and perpetual negative demonizing coverage of the protesters. Yes. Um, It is an inconvenience. That's the point. (laughs) 
There was I was very- so impressed last year with the that group with that wonderful name, Insulate Britain. And these were people, these were older people. These were people, they were not kids. They were all pretty old people sitting on the road protesting to demand insulation. I mean, this was, <laughs> I, I, and I spoke to them. I said, first of all, they weren't just for insulation. They were for a whole range of building measures for efficiency. But they told me they grabbed on insulation because everyone would understand it in two words, insulate Britain. But I thought, I can't believe people are protesting for insulation. This is fabulous. And look what they were doing. People were throwing ink at them. They were driving at them. All the laws were changed to arrest them, like 75-year-olds being thrown in jail for six months. Because what? They stopped traffic? There was the Range Rover lady who tried to run over some of them. She ended up doing personal appearances in nightclubs. In the the period shortly after she became a celebrity. Right. I don't think you're changing those hearts or minds. Still, we must try. Yeah. So, um, did you have a nice time? <laughs> on this? Oh, no, no. It, a nice time on your tour. Your oh, I had a wonderful tour. time. We had one we had one little disaster that uh the guy who was driving uh one of our rental cars and I love because North Americans all tend to drift over because we're on the wrong side of the road from us and he hit a curb and blew the tire and we were like four days without one of our two cars and first we were taking transit and then I was running and taking taxis and then I'm not a very big guy and I said you know this is a hatchback I'll just sit in the trunk and so I was just, I have pictures of me sort of my head poking up from the trunk, sitting in the trunk, which I believe is illegal. But uh, that way we could all get in the one car and it solved a lot of trouble. So that was the only disaster that we had. But it was oh. a great trip. And the first, the, the uh, I met so many wonderful people, so many inspiring people, people that I've known and communicated with. You know, I know that we're not supposed to fly. And I know that we can do everything in Zoom. And I know that it's supposed to be the way I should be living and not flying. But look at the list of people that I've met in person for the first time. You know, Andy Simmons, Alex. Our very own, yeah. Nick, Nick, Al, Al Clark, um, the two, uh, the, the engineers and the architects and the people I met. And I never had prepared questions and I never got sort of lots of answers. I just liked being with them in person and talking to them and getting to know them. And honestly, I hate to say it, you can't do it on Zoom in the same way. No. Well, see, we're discussing this with one of our clients, like a a, a proposition that uh, you've got to invest your carbon wisely. We can't get away from it. Like it is how the world has been built, the world in yeah. which we live. So you've got to be mindful, not in some hippie crystals and chanting sense. Just right. be aware of where you are expending it and how to to mitigate that. It's about reducing demand. Uh, in the same sort of way you approach it with building. Do as little as you can and invest it where it counts. Yeah. So for you, I mean, I can see as it will make a, it will have made a difference. The bit I'm curious about is what's going on in Hereford that uh, you found such a tight constellation of people and interesting projects 
Like it's where the ECB conference was held last year as well. Yeah, there's something in the water. I don't know. But like you look at the concentration of people, like, first of all, Archetype, the firm Archetype sort of built their main office there. And that was going to be a big draw for young architects, I think, that you would have such a prominent firm. I know that they are having trouble attracting talent to come out and live out there, which is why they have an Edinburgh and a London office as well. Yeah. But, you know, that was probably a center of uh, attraction. And it's just remarkable. Uh, like, that's why that's why George McCurchick was there. And I don't know why Nick Grant's, Grant is there, but it seems to be a hotbed. Yeah. And <laughs> I was impressed. Like Glastonbury attracts Druids, Her- Herefords. Mm-hmm. Got his passive house architects. Yes, and hey, hey, on why got the books? And hey, on why because one nutty person did that. And I guess it may be that just Archetype did it in Hereford. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, that's that. Well, that's that question answered as much as I think it's going to be. Um. All right. So you've got your book coming out next year. I was wondering, your old book. Uh, what was it called? Living a 1.5 degree lifestyle. Is that going to need to be revised up to two degrees? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, it might have to be, yes, but it's still a target that, like, the last IPC report came out, the one on mitigation, that very clearly, if we cared, if we were serious, if the world wanted to, we could do it. Just by reducing demand on the demand side of it, uh, we could kill emissions by 40 to 70 percent. If people would just stop driving, if people would just build passive houses, if people would just stop eating red meat, uh, if you did a couple of these measures, all of which are doable, the problem is nobody wants to do anything. As we've all said, you know, you can't get people to, to it, it's not in their personal plans that they're going to do any of this stuff. But uh, it very it, it clearly laid out what you could do, just like get the fossil fuel companies, stop subsidizing them. Why did the UK ban onshore wind turbines, which are the cheapest ones to build? Because a couple of landowners didn't want to look at them. They had the same thing in Canada. They basically went dead. Nobody's priorities are dealing with climate. They'd much rather say, put that wind turbine somewhere else, and I want that stake. Yeah, it's, it's so, just too inconvenient, isn't it? It's, it's inconvenient. Just, yeah, I want, I want a life of convenience. I don't want to have to bother yeah, about the environment. Exactly, exactly. We know what to do. Just nobody wants to do it, and that's the fundamental problem. Well, it's not that they don't want to do it. But convenience but, is the biggest problem that we've got, that we've gotten into this culture of convenience, as I called it, where we just expect everything to be easy. So take out coffee as in a one-way single-use coffee cup because it's convenient to put it in our cars that have gotten as big as dining rooms because we eat in them. Uh, and um, all of the stuff that we do for convenience. Well, the, uh, the convenience is a symptom. It's not a core driver convenience is a differentiator so if you are in a system uh, a system of overconsumption the most convenient version of the thing that you are overconsuming is the one that's going to get your dollar but that's the way that works like if you think about things in terms of convenience and service 
but we are increasing the use to incredibly poor customer service in the things we consume. Convenience is not an issue in any of those. And the 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 common ground between the two things is the system. Like it's all all it is is driving consumption. Like we could change consumption from red meat to uh soy uh fungus and bugs. Yes. But there is not a will to do so. I was uh Oh man, no, I'm gonna that's too obtuse a sidetrack. Right, we should probably wrap up now. Uh I think. It's really interesting getting that external perspective. And what I was hoping for was that you would like we're quite down on a lot of the stuff that's happening in this country. Rightly so. Like there's a lot of negativity. So you often need this sort of like a an external perspective to highlight what's positive, to be able to right. see what's good. And I'm not saying we don't have positive people on the podcast because we have a lot of positive no. people. Well, I was sure was positive about everybody I met there. I mean, there's so many smart thinkers here. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really tickled by that arc, uh, the the archive project that you mentioned. Right. I really want to. We must look into that. Um. Right. So we'll blag uh, Lloyd to give us links to all the things he discussed in the show notes. Thank you for listening. I've really enjoyed this, Lloyd. Uh, right. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. And, yeah this uh, was fun. Wide ranging. Oh, my <laughs> standard. Um, and uh, we are working on another podcast series with Lloyd, which was what precipitated this conversation. So uh, we will let you know more about that as it happens. But I think we should we should probably have one out next month, which will we'll trail or something. Uh, and yeah, cheers for listening. Uh, join all the same people. Join ACAN, join the ECB, join the IGBC. Advertise or subscribe to Passive House Plus. Advertise if you're a business in that sector. It's not just about passive houses. It's all about decarbonization, low energy, retrofit, all of these things. Um, and talk to us if you're working in this space and you might need some help with regard to communications, marketing, websites, that sort of thing, or just user research. Increasingly, we're working with people to do that. Uh, find out about their customers, what they think, how products are being used in order to be able to help develop products, develop their application in terms of finding new markets and market them better. Anyway, I'll stop bleating on about us. Uh, I'll just say goodbye. Cheers, Lloyd. Cheers, Alex. Cheers. Thanks. Thank you for this. It was fun. Yeah, it was a good conversation. Thank you. It's nice yeah. to chat again as well. Yes. Yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with uh, Kate as well. I think that's going to be the start of something really interesting. I think so, too. Well, uh, I'll speak to you soon. Okay, see you later. See you later. Bye. See you, Alex. Bye. Bye. Just before we go, there was quite a long sidetrack where we started talking about food production and the food industry from towards the end, which I just cut out because, I mean, it wasn't about the built environment, but it was quite interesting. So I've stuck that after the, the outro music. So if you want to listen to it, hang around. If not, you can stop listening now. All right, cheers. Oh, the thing we didn't say is, if you got something out of this, you probably know someone else who will as well. So why not share it with them? And if you've already done that, thank you. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for listening.
But you could change it, like I said in my book, you could change it to chicken, which is another meat that people eat, and it would have a massive impact. How much trouble is it to say, oh, I'm going to have a chicken burger instead of a hamburger? It's not, but people won't even do that. No, but the system is not set up to encourage that behavioral shift. Like, what you got to do is just take the cows out of the equation. I don't mean take them outside and shoot them. I just mean people need to stop selling it. Yeah. Well, the whole thing, I have a chapter in my new book on hamburgers. I actually do a chapter on, I'll pick a whole bunch of weird different things. And, you know, the hamburger basically developed because it was a really good way for people to sell compromised meat. You know, they could put in the all kinds <laughs> of crap into the meat. And so it was a cheap meat and it was originally served on a plate. It was a hamburger steak. And then in about 1910, people were setting up carts outside the factories to pe feed people lunch. And so that they could hold it in these factory food, it was factory food. They would sell the hamburger between two pieces of bread so you could hold it. So the thing developed originally as to be the cheapest food for the working man, adulterated meat between two pieces of bread. So they didn't even have to sell you a plate or a, or a napkin. You know, here's your here's your lunch. And that's how we got hamburgers. And that's how we got the name hot dog, that when they came out, they were also a convenience food for poor people. And people were joking that it was made with dog meat. And so the name hot dog came from the fact that people were joking that they were probably eating dog meat. And we still have that name. <laughs> and, and then in 1916, they opened, this one guy said, well, we have to make hamburgers acceptable. So what he did is he put the meat grinder in the window of the shop so that everybody could actually see that he was taking real meat and he was grinding it and he was making the burgers. And everybody flocked to him. Everybody just came to him, and that became the White Castle chain in the United States. <laughs> and um, it's it's a remarkable history that was like designed to be a way of adulterating meat, grind it up, and mix everything else into it. <laughs> oh man, this is making me hungry. <laughs> yeah. So why do people now love hamburgers? I would say, ooh. Get a chicken burger. At least you can see the whole chicken breast and you know it's not adulterated meat. But there we go. Oh, so you can't be entirely sure with a chicken because the rest of the bird might have been diseased. Yes. Okay. So this is this is where we get back to it being a systemic issue. These are there are particular drivers of our economies and the systems that support them. Uh and none of them are about quality. No, I was after I wrote that in my book about the 1.5 that I'd switched when we ate meat. We just didn't eat red meat at all, but we did eat occasional chicken. And people started coming after me about, you want to talk about cruelty of raising chickens and how horrible it is and how many billions of chickens we're raising under these abysmal conditions. And, you know, put me off my chicken burger. Uh <laughs> I think I think we kill more chickens as a species. Humanity kills more chickens a year than there are other kinds of bird alive. Oh yes, absolutely. There are more. Yes, like by a massive, massive, massive amounts. That if you measured all the birds 
uh, in the world, it would be like 95% chicken or some ridiculous statistic <laughs> like that. Yeah. How do we solve a problem like that? Well, it's the same issue as it is in buildings and cars and everything. It is reduce demand. You know, think about what are alternatives that are lower carbon and make them taste delicious and market them to be delicious and have people realize reduced demand. You know, the other thing also that happened when we got the takeout culture, it used to be when you went to have a cup of coffee, you sat down with a china cup with about five ounces of coffee in it. It was a small cup because you were sitting in a restaurant and they wanted to turn the table. They wouldn't give you a big cup because you'd stay there too long. And it was only when we went to the takeout system that there became this war to make them bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So now that you go in and you get like 20 ounces of coffee and you sip on it all day and your car is 12 cup holders and we're just consuming so much more than we ever used to because they don't have to pay the real estate. And so they can make it as big as you want and get more money. Yeah. I can't remember if it was on the last podcast or the... A, a conversation we'd had where you described the shift in car design so bigger and bigger cars which right. has been led by america was because the dining room the, the cars became dining rooms yes yes uh not strictly a problem over here or not strictly an issue over here although we have but your cars have gotten much much bigger yeah. i even saw a few american pickup trucks when i was there i was shocked absolutely crackers 